Today's scripture comes from John 15, 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I have commanded you so that you will love one another. You may be seated. Well, as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for this gathering of your church, for your people gathered this morning to hear your word, to remain in your love, to receive the joy you have for us, and to be obedient to your commands. And so help us, Lord. We need your help. We're desperate this morning. Come by your spirit, speak to us, enliven, energize our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, it's good to be with you. We're awake this morning. Yes. Some of us. It's, it's good to be with you. My name is Jake. If you're new or visiting, uh, I want to say welcome. I want to add my welcome to the other Jake's welcome. Uh, if you want to tell us apart, uh, Jake said the other week, uh, I'm old Jake or pale Jake is what he called me, which is offensive because this is as tanned as I've ever been. Um, and so I was quite proud of, of my, um, my tan. Not anymore. It's good to be with you. This morning is part of a two-week series we're beginning this fall with, where we're establishing some fundamentals of who we are as a church. Next week, we're picking back up in our First Corinthians series, but this week, as part two of this series, is establishing who we are, what we're doing here. And I'd encourage you, if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, to listen to it. This week's sermon makes sense largely with that first week attached to it. And if you missed last week, I said this. I said the mission of Christ City Church is to make missional disciples. Those are disciples who make other disciples. To make missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. For the sake of this neighborhood and other neighborhoods around the city. We learned last week from John 15 that our church can only make these replicating disciples if we are the church that abides in Christ that remains with Christ, makes our home with Christ. If we, if we pray together, meet together, speak God's word to one another, and serve together. What I want to do this week then as part two of these two weeks in John 15 is for us to see what fuels our mission. How we actually get from point A to 
Point B. And specifically, I want us to see what it means this morning for us to be the joy-filled church. The joy-filled church. See, every moving thing, this will sound very obvious, every moving thing runs on something, right? Plants run by sun and water, fueled by sun and water. Cars fueled by, I guess, now electricity, but used to be gas, right? But what fuels people? What fuels us? And I think how you answer that question is revealing as to what you think a person is. So for some of us this morning, it's really easy. People are just highly evolved animals. And then for us, the answer to what fuels us might be something like food and sex and the threat of death. Those all fuel me. And yet it's true, isn't it? As a society, we have more food and more sex than we know what to do with. And we've never been unhappier. So maybe you have more of a a complex view of the person. And so you say a person is a social, spiritual, emotional creature. So for fuel, we need things that fill up those respective tanks. And so we say, I have friends for my social tank. I have meditation for my spiritual tank, and I have a therapist for my emotional tank. And this, I think, is what the average Vancouverite believes, what most of the people we encounter believe. But if you live in the city, as I live in the city, you know this and I know this, we're not exactly encountering all the time people who feel full, are we? People filled to the brim. And you may have seen even recently that Canada is is sliding down the world happiness index. Once number two, I think, now number 15. Right close to the Americans. It's that bad. (laughs) If stuff or, or checking all the boxes doesn't fuel people, then what does? I think the answer might surprise us. And it might surprise us because it's something that we don't talk a lot about. The answer, I think, is joy. I think joy fuels people. The the thing that fuels people, the thing that fuels the church, the very thing that actually fueled Jesus was, is, and has always been joy. Nehemiah 8.10 says this, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, neuroscientists, catching up with Scripture, Uh, say this, and, and one psychologist puts it emphatically, our brains desire joy more than anything else. That's the fuel that people run on. So if last week was about where we want to go, this week is about the joy that we need to get there. And I don't know about you, but, but I could use a sermon on joy. So if nothing else, I'm preaching to myself. Here are our two points this morning. First, Jesus is joy or the joy of Jesus, and second, joy in his church. Are you with me? We're a joyful people? Not really. First, the joy of Jesus. John 15, 9 to 11 says this. Have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, grab them from the back. Take it, keep it. It's our gift to you. John 15, 9 to 11 says this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, or as we saw last week, remain, make your home in my love. Jesus continues to say, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Then he says this, verse 11, 
These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Last week, last week we saw that in our union with Jesus, right, being joined to Jesus, the true vine, right, we are invited to make our home in the love that has always existed, forever existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's one of the greatest promises of the Bible, that we can abide in the love that has eternally existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Twice so far, we've been invited to abide, remain in Jesus' love. And if that wasn't enough, if the invitation wasn't already overwhelming, today we have another invitation. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Maybe Jesus, maybe God, who is filled with joy, surprises you. Maybe that surprises you this morning. There is this phenomenon that has been true in every culture and in every time, and it's this. Uh, We fashion God, we fashion our deities according to our own image, according to what we're like and how we think. And even how we look. Uh, The Greek philosopher Xenophanes, he once wrote this. But mortals suppose that gods are born, wear their own clothes and have a voice and body. Ethiopians say that their gods are snub-nosed and black. Thracians that theirs are blue-eyed and red-haired. Our generation is, is no different, right? In a largely depressed post Enlightenment society, we believe God to be very somber. It's very serious. He's very academic, right? It's very rigorous. Maybe a cold and callous brain detached from emotions. That's our God. We we functionally worship it, if we're honest. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus shows us exactly who God is. And if Jesus is anything to go on, then our God, Christ City, is a God of, of joy of great and surpassing and amazing and tremendous joy. We just read in John 15, 11, that Jesus wants his disciples to have his joy. Later in John 17, we're invited into a prayer between Jesus and his Father. And there, as Jesus is praying to his Father, he says this, Father, now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. Why? That they, my disciples, you that my disciples may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was able to endure all that he endured. Why? Well, let's look at what he says. Who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was filled with joy. Filled with it. What was his secret? Now, this is the point where, as a pastor, I write a book with five tips to finding joy, and it makes me millions of dollars. But I don't think it's that complex. I don't think it's that complex, no. The first thing we need to see is that in his pursuit of joy, Jesus actually didn't pursue joy. Let me say it again. In his pursuit of joy, Jesus actually didn't pursue joy. The mistake you and I make is we say, the goal is joy. 
And I just need to get there. If I can just get to joy, then I'll be okay. I'll get joy. Jesus was never aiming at joy. And by the way, Jesus was never aiming at peace. He was never aiming at patience. He was never aiming at gentleness. Joy and all those things are a byproduct, a, a fruit, to borrow the language of the scriptures, a fruit, you could say, of proximity. Joy is the fruit of relationship. Joy was something birthed in Jesus in relationship with his father. And so in his classic, uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this. I think, he's, I think he's right. Good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. This is pre-COVID, and so it's okay to say that. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. Then he says this, if you want joy and power and peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into, that's the language of John 15, the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? We, we could say, once a man or a woman is united to God, how could they not have his joy? See, joy, Jesus' joy, in fact, all joy is relational. It's a relational reality. Joy has its source in the relationship with God. And we see this not just in the New Testament, but clearly throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms, there's a connection between the face of God, the face of God and our joy. We see it over and over and over and over again. And sometimes we miss it in our translations, but it's there. So for example, in, in Psalm 16, verse 11, you lead me in the path of life. I experience absolute joy in your presence. And the word presence there is kind of nebulous and like kind of obscured, not really clear. But literally in the Hebrew, it's in your face there is fullness of joy. And the picture is of a father smiling down on David with a big grin on his face. Happy. In your face there is fullness of joy. Remember the blessing from, from Numbers, right? May, may your face shine upon me. Right? Psalm 89, 15 says, Blessed are the people who know, know the joyful sound. Lord, they walk in the light of your face. It's relational language, expressive language. Over and over again, Scripture teaches us that the face of God, his joy-filled, happy gaze, is what brings us joy. And I don't know about you, presence seems hard to understand, but I can picture a father looking with his joy-filled face towards me. Still, to this day, my very favorite part of each day is coming home in the door and seeing my son, his, his face light up with joy as, as he runs towards me. In view of all this, one author, he paraphrases John 15, 11 as saying something like this. And I think it's true. I think it's a good paraphrase. I want to read it to you. 
Jesus is saying something like, my father's face lights up when he sees me because I'm so special to him. I'm telling you this, disciples, so that you will feel how special you are to my father and to me. Our faces, our faces are shining on you with delight. And I think this is why the gospel, the good news of Jesus is so amazing. Again, neurologists will tell us that our right brains, which I don't understand what those are, and ask Ryan if you want to talk about right brains later. Our, our right brains are constantly scanning right, our surroundings, looking for people who are happy to be with us. And that sounds abstract, but just imagine elementary school. And imagine showing up on the first day of kindergarten or, or grade one. What are you doing? You're feeling radically insecure, right? Radically insecure, and you're looking for someone to acknowledge you, and not just acknowledge you, not just to say, oh, you're there, but, but to acknowledge you with, with a smile, a happy face. I'm happy to be with you. Our brains are constantly on the lookout for joy. But you don't need to be a neurologist to know this. Living in an isolated world means that we're living in an increasingly insecure world. It doesn't matter if you're a teen trying on being a goth or an adult who drinks too much to fit in at work. We're all looking to belong. We're looking for the joy that Jesus surely felt when his father spoke over him in Matthew 3. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The gospel answers in us this existential longing we have to find someone with a smile towards us. Jesus' joy can be your joy if you trust in him. And the Bible says when you're united to Christ, the father looks on us and says something like, you look good. You look good. You look good. I don't see your shame. And I don't see your shortcomings anymore. You are wearing my son's obedience, so you look good. And he's smiling, not scowling, not tis tisking us. And church, when we have Jesus' joy in us, we are full. There's a connection in John's gospel with, with this language of joy and this verb to be fulfilled or, or, or to have completed. All throughout John's gospel, again and again, this gospel writer is making that point. We have joy, joy to the full, joy to the complete. Nothing lacks, nothing misses. We're at a banquet and, and we've eaten all we can and we're satisfied. We're full. What, what, what more is there to do than to sit back having received everything? So I want to ask now, I want to move from Jesus himself to Jesus' church. What does it look like to be a community of people who together have satisfied themselves on the joy of Jesus? This is point two, joy in his church. John 11, sorry, John 15, verse 11 to 15 says this. If you have your Bible, you can read with me. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And Jesus continues to say, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, 
For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have, all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. We'll stop there. What we can't miss in this section is the unmistakable link that Jesus makes between keeping his commands, obedience, and receiving his joy. Obedience and joy. And this is not new to Jesus. Psalm 1 famously says, Blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And this leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We're going to get into it a bit more here in a second. I just want to stop and say, for some of us, not for all of us, but for some of us, our lack of joy in our life is really simply related to our disobedience. Our unwillingness to hear God's word and obey it. I want to ask you this morning, is the Lord calling you to walk in obedience? And are you saying no? And if you are, your joy and so much more depends on you saying yes. Jesus, the fulfillment of God's word, the fulfillment of God's law, says to us, all the commands I have received from my Father, all the commands I made known to you, I spoke these things to you, not to add a yoke unto your back, but I spoke them to you for your joy. And the command that stands above the rest is this. He says in John 15, that you love one another as I have loved you. Which means, love one another with the love that I'm about to show you on the cross. Love one another with radical and sacrificial and, and weird and strange and too much love. That's what he's saying. He says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Church, joy is found in keeping God's commandment to love one another. Again, to pause, one of the objections I hear and one of the objections I feel goes like this. I've tried to love the church. I've tried. I've tried to love the church and instead of finding joy, I found exhaustion. I've tried to love the church, and instead of finding joy, I found bitterness. I've tried, and I found something else other than joy. Can you relate to that this morning? If you can, John actually helps us understand what's happening here. Listen, joy, if we remember, is, is relational. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit birthed from our relationship with God who says to us, you are my beloved child, I see you and I'm happy to see you. But this vertical truth between us and God is also true horizontally. Our joy reserves, whether you're a Christian or not, however you come this morning, whatever you believe, our joy reserves are built up in meaningful community and depleted or withdrawn from in, in isolation. That's just a fact. Now, there's a study that shows uh, that the rates of depression increase 12-fold, 
twelvefold in cultures with a low degree of interconnectedness. All of this together means that love must be understood not just in doing acts of service repeatedly and constantly towards one another, but as doing these acts of service in the context of a loving and caring and Christ-centered community where you know others and others know you. And not just like know you, I know Jake likes football, but like know you. Like I know Jake is a big fat sinner and he has a lot of things to work out. So here's what I think is happening when, when we come up with that objection that I felt, that you felt. Jesus says, love one another. He doesn't just say, love one another. He actually says, love one another as I have loved you. He refers to a radical and costly, weighty love. And because we're not abiding in Christ, not remaining with him, not making our home with him, we don't hear the command from a place of relational joy, but from the alternative. And the alternative is fear. We hear the command to love one another, not from a place of relational joy, but from a place of fear. A place of servile duty. And if joy is the good stuff that fuels our brain, well, a couple authors write, fear is the second-rate alternative fuel on which it is often forced to run. For many of us, Fear is the dominant fuel running our brain. We think in terms of damage control and live more to avoid what is overwhelming than to enjoy what is satisfying. I don't know about you that convicted me this week. We think in terms of damage control and live more to avoid what is overwhelming than to enjoy what is satisfying. Leaders who run on fear eventually burn out. They also burn out people they lead. Some of you will know some of you won't, and if not, welcome to Christ City. Last May, I took seven weeks off as a result of, of burnout. And that's a long, long conversation. I love to tell you that over coffee. But if I could pinpoint the heart of how I got to a place of burnout, I would say I was running on second-rate fuel. I was running on fear. And I imagine I'm not alone. If you can relate, let me plead with you this morning. Hear what Jesus says next in John 15, 15. I think it makes all the difference. Jesus says this. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The command to love one another is for Jesus' friends. I want to say that again because it's really important. The command to love one another, the weighty and heavy command to love one another, is for Jesus' friends. It's for his friends. The command to radical and costly and life-altering love for one another is for Jesus' friends. Are, are you a friend of Jesus? Have you made your home with Jesus? Then, and only from that joy-filled relationship with him, love one another. But if that's not you, if you're not there this morning, if you're not a friend of our generous Jesus who gives us everything 
then John 15, the passage we read, is crushing to us. It's overwhelming for us. And yet, I think there's another group among us. There are some of us this morning who have been tirelessly loving from their own reserves, and you think you're fine. You actually think you're doing great. I want to give you an illustration I heard from an author named John Elridge. He says that when you're crossing a desert, a camel is the animal you want. A camel is the animal you want. Camels have been called the ships of the desert, and for good reason. Right? They, they can go for thousands of miles right, without any source of, of, of nutrients and, and, just, and just trek on and go and go and go and go. But a camel has an Achilles heel, and it's this. A camel will go for days and days and days in impossible conditions and then suddenly will die. Will just collapse and die. That's why camels have been called traitorous animals, right? You think they're doing fine and then they're dead. It's why horses, you might know this, will show you signs of exhaustion, right? They'll slowly tell you, like, I'm not doing well, and so you can give them water or food or, or cause them to rest. But camels, they won't tell you any of that. They'll just go and go and go, and then they'll die. And in view of this illustration, Eldridge writes this. He says, human souls hide an Achilles heel too. We have an astonishing capacity to rally in the face of calamity and duress. We rally and rally, and then one day we discover there's nothing left. Our soul simply says, I'm done. I, I don't want to do this anymore. As we collapse into discouragement, depression, or just blankness of soul. And, and because I'm your pastor and you've given me that privilege and that joy, I know that some of you have been rallying for years. For years. For many of us, the pandemic then was the straw that broke the camel's back. And you're done. You're done. And if that's you this morning, and joy seems the furthest thing from you, and you're really annoyed with all I've been saying, please hear me. Please hear me. The Bible says that joy is a feeling. It's a feeling. There's no getting around that. Joy is a feeling. It's an emotion. But, but sometimes that emotion takes a back seat in the car. Like when Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus, or wept over the sin of Jerusalem, or wept over himself in the garden. The author of Ecclesiastes says, There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The Christian is not expected to wear a Ned Flanders grin in the face of real sadness. Yet while the joy might move between the back seat and the front seat, and the back seat and the front seat. Joy actually for the Christian never leaves the car. Yes, joy is an emotion, but Jesus also speaks of joy being an unmovable and unchanging reality for the one united to him. And I want us to go to John 16. In John 16, Jesus acknowledges that his disciples will soon be sad. And you should hear that. Jesus does not say to his disciples, chin up, put a brave face on, be a stoic. He says, you will soon be sad because I'm going to die. And so you'll soon be sad. 
But, but he compares the sorrow the disciples will soon experience to the sorrow experienced by a woman in labor. He says this in John 16, 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so Jesus says this in verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one here at Christ City, and no one will take your joy from you. So you might be in the pit of hell this morning. But if you belong to Jesus, you need to hear this. You've been given a joy that can never be taken. You have a joy that cannot be taken by depression or by circumstance, not by the devil or the flesh or the world. If Jesus is alive, you have joy. You have joy that though it escapes you now, is rock solid. Though it's in the back seat, is not going anywhere. And my exhortation to you this morning is as hard as it is, hold on to Jesus, who is our joy. But the second thing I want to say is this. I, I know what it is to burn out. I, I know what it is to be in the throes of depression. And I know what it is in view of all these things to want to isolate, to keep to myself. But if John 15 is to be believed and joy is the fruit of relationship, both with God and with others, the thing that you are doing, the isolation, the thing that you are doing in the name of self-protection and self-preservation might actually be hurting you the most. So slowly but surely, in safe and entrusted confines, begin to reach out to God and to others. So here's how I want to end this morning. I want to end this morning by reading John 15, 16 to 17 twice. I want to read it twice. I'll read the first time without any explanation. Then I'll explain why we're reading it twice. Jesus says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I, I used to read John 15, 16 to 17 as a slave and not as a friend. A, a slave reads these two verses, these two verses through the lens of burden. You did not choose me, but I chose you, evoking images of a master dragging an unwilling slave from the auction block. Go and bear fruit the harsh command of an uncaring owner. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. The impossible ask for an impossible task only serving to drive me further into despair. But let me say it for the 50th time. The command to love one another is for Jesus' friends. So how does a friend read John 15, 16 to 17? Verse 16 you did not choose me, but I chose you. I picked you up from the gutter with my gentle but firm hand, Jesus says. I washed you and I cleaned you. I gave you my best clothes, the best seat at my table. And I called you who were once a stranger now, my, my child, my beloved. 
You did not choose me. I, I, I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I've given your life purpose. It has purpose and meaning. You can make a difference, not just now, but forever. Though heaven and earth will pass away, your fruit done through me and in my name will remain forever. I've given you eternal purpose. And because you're mine and I am yours, all my resources are at your disposal in our mission to bear fruit. In fact, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And these things I command you so that you may love one another. And do you remember why I gave you that command? Not arbitrarily, not to heap burden upon you, but these things I have spoken to you, Christ City, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want to read John 15, 16 to 17 again. And let me invite you, maybe for the first time, to hear these verses, not as a slave, but as a friend. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus who loved us when we were unlovable. Jesus who saw us when we were far away. Jesus who cleaned us and clothed us and called us his son or his daughter. We worship you, Jesus. We glorify you, Jesus, and we say thank you, thank you, thank you. May we be a church full with your joy. Lord, we pray that your joy seen in us and through us would be a light to an increasingly sad world. And so help us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.